Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. When it comes to Australia's world-famous flora and fauna, we associate their discovery with British men like John Gould and Joseph Banks. But of course, Aboriginal peoples have been living alongside Australia's wildlife for tens of thousands of years, and the sophisticated knowledge Indigenous peoples shared with early naturalists was vital for Western science's understanding of creatures like the world's only egg-laying mammals, the echidna and the platypus, and a whole range of other creatures like emus, lungfish and the black-breasted buzzard. But the Indigenous guides that helped European colonists through the unforgiving Australian landscape gathered thousands of specimens and shared their knowledge with early naturalists usually went unacknowledged. With a few exceptions, the vast majority of Australia's animals are named for white men. But a new book, Australia's First Naturalists, seeks to draw attention to the contribution made by Indigenous peoples to early zoology in Australia. I have the co-authors of the book joining me. One of them is Dr Penny Olsen, who is an honorary professor in ecology, evolution and genetics at the Australian National University. Hi, Penny. Hi, Angus. And we also have Professor Lynette Russell, the director of the Menashe Indigenous Studies Centre. Hi, Lynette. Hi, Angus. Thank you both so much for joining me. Um, You've both written books about subjects like gender, Australian birds and Indigenous history, but what brought you two together to write this book? Yes, well, I've, I've, um, I've written quite a few books on Australian natural history, particularly birds, and I kept coming across uh, in the early accounts how much the um, Aboriginal people helped the early zoologists and early explorers who collected, collected animals along the way. And I put a proposal to the National Library, and they liked it. Um, and... Uh, most of the voices I came across were, of course, European, so we thought we should um, engage someone with a bit more uh, knowledge of Indigenous natural history, or in, uh, is that the right word? Well, Indigenous um, Indigenous uh, natural history knowledge and Indigenous behaviour and agency, particularly 19th century. Penny, you've had a career as a field biologist. During that career, which animals did you focus on or work with? Uh, well, I started out on with mammals, water rats and um, house mice, gone berserk in, in um, places like the Riverina um, as pests. And then I, my interest in birds grew and grew and grew. So... But birds of prey are my great passion. How do you think your background as a field biologist, an ornithologist and a researcher of natural history helped you um, take on this project of Australia's First Naturalists and write the book? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I have an understanding of the biology of the animals. But, and and also along the way, I've picked up quite a lot of the um, the history of their discovery and naming and uh, associated things like that. Lynette, how did your work in anthropological history put you in a good position to research and write a book like this? Well, my area of expertise is very much um, 19th century Aboriginal cultural histories. 
So a lot of what we, we do actually venture into the 20th century, I might add, but a lot of this is based in the 19th century. And my area of interest has always been looking at the ways in which Aboriginal people have engaged with um, colonisers. So I'm really looking at from both sides of the, the frontier, as to, to use a term that uh, Henry Reynolds might have used. So my interest right from the start has always been what did Europeans do when they encountered Aboriginal people and how did Aboriginal people then respond to Europeans? So this was kind of an ideal project for me. I'd finished, uh, had just finished writing a book on the execution of two Tasmanian Aboriginal men in early Melbourne and prior to that I'd been working on the Aboriginal people participating in the whaling and sealing industries. So I came from that that solid 19th century background. Both of you can have a stab at answering this question if you like, um, but why has the contribution Aboriginal peoples made to early zoology in Australia gone unacknowledged? Like, what are the reasons for that? It hasn't gone totally unacknowledged, but just hasn't gone fully uh, fully acknowledged, if you like. Um, part of the reason that it is it's hidden away, um, they're often... It's hidden away in explorers' accounts and, and early journals and diaries and things like that. And it's often just just a throwaway line, like, you know, excuse the language, but the black boy climbed the tree and got the eggs. Um, and in those days, the the world was the, well, the scientific world was very much um, concerned with naming and classifying the the natural world, and. Um, that coincided with the discovery of Australia and, and its animals. And um, and that was all coming from uh, Britain and Europe. So all those early specimens went back and the the scientists there claimed them with, without acknowledging the um, in their source, their true source, which was some indigenous collector uh, who had collected it for... Uh, you know, it gone. They'd gone through several hands. They'd gone through a collective for. Um, well, sometimes it was an ex explorer collecting on the side. Sometimes it was a, a dedicated natural history collector hired by someone in England, for example. So all the specimens just went back to England, and they were given classical names. Sometimes named after um, friends, friends of the. Um, the Europeans to curry favour and, and get sponsorship and so forth. And I'll, I'll just add to that that for a, a lot of the early collectors and the early naturalists, they observed Aboriginal people as kind of just part of nature. They didn't see them as having uh, knowledge. That What we've really looked at is, is Indigenous knowledge and how that actually was um, used and facilitated the early collectors. So while people didn't see them as cultural beings, they saw them as just part of nature. So they didn't really remark on their knowledge about the, um, the either the fauna or the flora, despite the fact that they took that knowledge and collect, made the collections. Penny, I think you mentioned that you started to notice comments about um, Indigenous peoples helping with early colonists and their understanding of Australia just through sort of throwaway lines in diaries and things like that. So... Was, was that the main source of research that you were going through um, in order to write Australia's First Naturalist, going back through the records? Like, what were the most valuable sources of research in kind of finding these contributions that Indigenous peoples have made? Uh, yes, well, well, you're correct. Um, so starting from uh, the, the 
accounts of Cook and Banks and people like that, all the way through to, well, um, into the 20th century when um, there was a lot more acknowledgement of both of, of the help received and of the knowledge that that was was there, but um, it, it just has never been collected together before. Once once you have the lens that you're you apply to the to the actual records, you start it starts to jump out at you. You see you see the Aboriginal people there, mm -hmm. um, and we if you unless you have that lens, in a sense you don't see them. And uh, we were lucky because Penny, in particular, when she started looking at those records, had the lens. She was looking for Aboriginal people and they jumped out. The first chapter of the book is dedicated to some of the ways that Aboriginal peoples used their zoological knowledge to thrive in pre-colonial times. Can you give some examples of how Aboriginal peoples demonstrated their advanced knowledge of zoology and animal behaviour? Well, Aboriginal people have lived on the continent of Australia for the, at least 65,000 years. And during that time, there's been epic changes in the environment um, massive changes in the flora and the fauna. We know that it's been colder and wetter, it's been hotter and drier. We've had the ice age come and go. So there's been a massive changes. And throughout of all of that, they've maintained a society, they've actually thrived, and they've clearly been able to manipulate their environment. And manipulate's a bit of a problematic word, but they've been able to, to engage with their environment and understand how they could actually improve the environment in places so that they could increase the number of kangaroos or macropods or, or whatever it is that they might be wanting to, to uh, harvest. So we know that they've been here 65,000 years. So in a sense, some of its deduction, we can deduce that they clearly knew what they were doing because they've, they've lived here for that length of time and they've thrived throughout that entire period. And archaeologists can tell us that uh, there are periods when, particularly when it's, it's a little bit wetter, for example, when Lake Mungo wasn't, as it is now, a, a dry, um, you know, kind of moonscape, but in fact was an, an active, thriving lake. There were probably hundreds, if not thousands of people uh, convened around that lake. Have, you know, we can see the evidence of their campsites. We can see the evidence of where they ate, their fish remains, their, their shell middens, their ochre, their charcoal. So these are, these are people who are thriving in an environment that the rest of us might find fairly harsh. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my next question sort of feeds into that. There was a line early on in the book that um, was quite interesting. You write that uh, prior to colonisation, Indigenous people didn't domesticate animals so much as domesticate landscapes. What do you mean by that? Well, they, what, what, what happened was, we, we don't necessarily in Australia, we don't really have animals that suit themselves to domestication, as you might imagine. You know, um, kangaroos and emus are, are not something that's easy to farm, nor should we be assuming that farming is the ideal way to engage with the landscape. But what Aboriginal people have done across this great millennia of occupation of this continent is they've created ecological niches, usually using fire. Fire has been the main... Um, I guess the main tool and mechanism for creating these fantastically rich landscapes where they could actually have exactly the sorts of animals that they wanted. These were often, well, these were in fact low, cool fires. Um, I, I've recently observed one of these fires and literally as the fire was going out, the animals, small insects and small mammals were actually popping up out of the ground. It wasn't a hot bushfire like we see when we have you know, nasty bushfires in our summers. 
So that's the kind of domestication of a landscape that I'm talking about. And in places like, say, Western Victoria, where you've got the eel aquaculture landscape, mm-hmm. that's a domestication of a very different kind where you've got people creating, building, um, construction, massive weirs, um, fish, what we call them eel fisheries, massive constructions that were able to ha- able to hold and harvest eels over very long periods of time. And that also nicely illustrates how they um, understood quite a lot about the life cycles of the eels as well. Um, they trapped them on the way out to the sea um, to spawn. Yeah, that's um, that's such a fascinating part of the book. And is it right that next to those sort of uh, eel um, fisheries, um, Australian Aboriginal peoples would set up more permanent sort of uh, camps or villages, which sort of busts that uh, stereotype, I guess, of, of them as hunter-gatherers? Certainly. Um, certainly hunter-gatherers, they, they are and were. But I think that, that what it really, the stereotype that it really breaks apart is the idea of... of of basically highly mobile um, wanderers, you know, as if they, they just wandered across the landscape without rhyme nor reason. And clearly the permanency of the villages, particularly in Western Victoria, there's also some permanent villages in, in Western Australia, those sorts of permanent structures, I mean, we're talking about um, stone houses, stone fish weirs, stone f- uh, fish traps and the like. This is about people who live in the environment, if not permanently, certainly on a semi-permanent basis, and they're not, they're not just wandering around. Um, the term when I was a kid was always, they're nomadic, you know, Aboriginal people were nomadic. We don't really hear that term so often now because I think we've really realised that it is not a very accurate characterisation of their engagement with their landscape. Um, there's an interesting anecdote in the book about how the word kangaroo came to be adopted by non-Indigenous people. Um, can you tell us about that miscommunication that occurred when Eora people first taught the word to Sydney's colonists? Yeah, well, when, when um, Sydney was settled, Port Jackson was settled, they, they, the uh, First Fleet officers knew of the Cooks, Cooks and Banks journals and... Uh, they'd, um, the Endeavour had beached, well, they had to beach the Endeavour, uh, Endeavour River to do repairs and, and that's where there was the first encounter with, um, it was the macropod. There's argument about which one. It wasn't necessarily, uh, necessarily an eastern grey kangaroo, but some one of that group um, was collected and famously went back to England and one of them must have asked the local people what they were called, and they thought they said kangaroo. And uh, there is evidence that that's what they called the male kangaroos in that part of the world. But anyway, when the First Fleet officers came to Sydney, they brought that name with them, and they were trying to get the local people to understand what it was, and, uh, and they just assumed the whole country had the same language. But, of course, there were hundreds of languages, so um, they didn't have much luck. Lynette, I I read that you've tried to get your tongue around uh, Indigenous languages and found it quite difficult. Um, Very difficult. Yeah. How common was it for colonists to attempt to learn Indigenous languages? Like, were miscommunications like this uh, quite common? Miscommunications are extremely common. 
Um, take, for example, in Victoria, in um, particularly when the establishment of Melbourne, the the what they called the Aborigines Protection Board was established, and they decided that they would put in place a number of protectors, and these protectors were to learn the local languages, and almost without without fail, they did not learn the language. Um, so Aboriginal languages are very difficult to learn. We also need to appreciate that most Aboriginal people were multilingual. So when we're talking about there's 250 different Aboriginal, discrete Aboriginal languages and 600 plus Aboriginal tribal groups, what we're looking at is um, people who could probably speak three, four, five, even six different Aboriginal languages and they would have been fluent in each of them. Europeans monolingual Europeans found it very difficult and Aboriginal languages, in my own experience, I'll guarantee it, my tongue just refuses to cooperate and it seems to move all around my mouth and not do the, make the right sounds. So I'm quite in awe of anyone who can pick up an Aboriginal language because they're not easy by any means. So a lingua franca definitely um, developed a pidgin English, as it were, or a creole. Um, I know in the Tasmanian context, they... they they often refer to it as Hobart, Hobart, Hobart Town language, which is a kind of creole of Palawa language and, and English. You also write in the book that not only was there this language divide between the Europeans and the Indigenous Australians, but also a cultural gulf in ways of seeing the natural world. What was this cultural gulf? How differently did the European colonists and Indigenous peoples see the natural world? This is probably the most profound, from my perspective, the most profound because what Aboriginal people would be saying, and I think even many Aboriginal people would say today, they don't see the natural world. It is They are part of it. They are the environment. It is, whereas Europeans, we still have that sort of culture-nature divide. We even talk about, you know, is it nature or is it nurture when we're talking about various types of you know, human behaviour. So Aboriginal people... Uh, and in fact, Indigenous people on the whole, because we shouldn't forget also the Torres Strait Islanders, on the whole, see the environment, see the landscape, see the, the ecology and all of that they live in as being part of their culture. It's not just nature the way we talk about na you know, nature for us is, you know, thunderstorms and rain and, and drought, uh, whereas for them, that's actually culture too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Penny, did you sort of get a, a new appreciation for... Uh, how Indigenous people saw the natural world, like as a biologist as well? No, I think probably I'd have to say no. I think I had a, a reasonable idea um, that they viewed it very differently and that was um, was part of, part of the, the problem, if you like, in communications in those early days. That, that um, you know, science was... It was a point in history where, where science was separating off from, from art and art and philosophy and those other sort of areas that um, in, in the European world um, we'd, be, we'd begun to put things in boxes so the, um, the colonists with the scientific bent uh, were thinking in, in that way and the local people just didn't see things in that way so for example some Aboriginal groups categorise an emu as a mammal because right. it's, it's a, it walks on the ground like, um, and it doesn't fly. So um, that's their way of categorising an emu, whereas we um, scientists put it in, you know, in, clearly in the bird group. Um, 
so it's, it was just a very different way of seeing the world. And, and as Lanessa said, it's just all interconnected. It, it was science and religion and, and cultural practices like um, art and dance and ceremony. Um, the, they felt they were kin to the... Absolutely. The, the, <coughs> they were the yeah. non-human kin. Mm. Speaking of this sort of cultural divide or differences, um, while writing this book, Lynette, what kind of issues did you have to keep in mind so you didn't inadvertently sort of feed into colonial stereotypes uh, non-Indigenous people might have of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? I think the key one for me is always um, around victimhood and um, not demonstrating or exploring or appreciating Aboriginal agency. So I'm very keen. I mean, I don't think we can pretend that the contact period wasn't at times violent, um, you know, filled with disease and, and devastation. But at the same time, I think it's really important that we don't just focus on that. But in fact, we also consider the multitude of ways in which Aboriginal people engaged with the colonists. Mm. and that they demonstrated their own agency. And I think there's some lovely examples of that in the book. Um, you know, the, the, the children who keep coming back for the lollies, you know, because they, 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 they're, what they're doing there is they're, they're actually saying, you know, we're, we're engaging in this on our own terms and we, we're going you know, to get the payment for it. And there's a whole range of lovely vignettes like that in the book, I think, that demonstrate that those kind of stereotypes of Aboriginal people as victims are really quite dangerous. You write about some of the early naturalists that sort of held this notion of white intellectual superiority towards uh, Aboriginal peoples, but who were some of these naturalists that you write about in the book who really embraced the knowledge and expertise of Indigenous people? One of the earliest was George Cayley in um, Sydney from 1800 to 1810. He was sent out by the great botanist Joseph Banks to mainly to collect plants, but along the way he developed an interest in birds and Banks also sent him out to to get um, things of interest like echidnas because of the fascination with the fact that they there were mammals that laid eggs and the, that was unknown anywhere else in the world and um, and, and, and indeed not accepted for a long time. As, as being possible. Um, so, and Kaylee actually was was someone who he formed a close relationship with a young indigenous man called Muwatan, um, and he learned the language of the Eora. Um, and yeah, really, really um, enjoyed his relationships with them, and uh, didn't always sit well with some of the other officers, but. Um, didn't stop him. Yeah, and what would the benefit or advantage of Kaylee's relationship with this young Indigenous man, Mawatan, have been in terms of his discoveries and uh, contributions to gathering specimens and things like that? Well, it became pretty obvious um, when I gathered all, all the material, well, we, we gathered all the material together for the book, that um, expeditions that didn't take um, Indigenous uh, guides or, or no, they weren't always guides, some of them were engaged specifically to collect material um, but I presume they also helped with as a guide as well but um, the, anyway those people who didn't take Indigenous help um, came back with much 
far fewer discoveries than um, than those who did. Yeah, and um, correct me if I'm wrong in any parts of this story, but is it right that uh, George Cayley and Daniel Mowatton went back to England together, and when Mowatton returned to Australia, he ended up sort of uh, being part of this legal case that was quite interesting. It, it was the first time that an Indigenous person was um, persecuted under the law in uh, New South Wales, is that right? Yes, that was, that was all very sad and, and I'm not sure that he wasn't in fact framed, but, uh, mm. um, but I guess we'll never know. But yes, there'd been a change in the law so that Indigenous people had to abide by British law, whereas up until that point they were uh, not obliged to. Mm. Um, and and uh, he was the first that um, suffered from that. Yeah, is it fair to say that in these relationships that formed between early naturalists and Indigenous people that quite often uh, the Indigenous people got the worse end of the deal? Mm. I, I think, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's complicated. It, um, is, it is complicated. Yeah. I'd hate to think that we were giving a, an impression that all of the Aboriginal people were mistreated because they weren't, um, nor were they all celebrated um, like Muatan was at least at one stage in his life. I think it's clear to me that the, the kinds of relationships that the early naturalists had with their Aboriginal and uh, Indigenous collectors ranged from everything from exploitative to genuine friendship. Uh, and I think, ev- and everything in between. Penny, you've written a book called Night Parrot, Australia's Most Elusive Bird. And the night parrot is one of those creatures that crops up in Australia's first naturalists. Um, first of all, for people who don't know how interesting this bird is, can you just tell us quickly why this parrot is so notorious nowadays? Uh, yeah, well, this, this is a nocturnal parrot that's um, always been very elusive in its behaviour and it hadn't been until 2013 it hadn't been definitely seen for around the century despite numerous um, ornithologists and bird watchers really trying hard to go out and find it there are always always the odd observation of truckies driving along at night and, and seeing this bird flush and but no confirmed, nothing confirmed for a very long time. So it, it, it became the holy grail of the bird world. Um, and then this naturalist called John Young um, produced some photos and, and a little video of, of a bird that he got in um, 2013. And uh, he taped the call, so the, the calls gave us um, a means to... Um, look for more populations as you can uh, there's a we call it call playback you play the call and and if there are birds in in the area they they don't always but they often answer so it was finally we had had the key to finding more more um populations the trouble is that um john got a bit carried away and discovered rather more populations than um there actually are <laughs> yeah um, but initially, how? What was the role of Indigenous people in bringing uh, bringing the attention of Western science to this now almost mythological bird? Um, yeah, it's it's 
I could only find bits and pieces, but they were certainly involved in those very early, maybe not the the first the first one, but um, the um, certainly a, a guy called Frederick Andrews who collected for the early um, Adelaide Museum. Uh, he was the most successful collector of night parrots ever. He he collected twenty something out of the the twenty eight or so that are in specimens that are in museums around the world, um, and they're extremely sought after. You know, right from dis discovery that they were a new new species. There are indications from some of Andrew's letters that he used the indigenous people to to achieve this great success because he writes to um, his minder in the Adelaide Museum that um, he's used up his, his, his um, month's um, salary. Um, and he, so he, he can't hire any others. And, and, and on another occasion that he can't find any that are interested in going out to look to help him. He doesn't specifically mention night parrots, but he was in that, the country, that part of the country where he was collecting night parrots. So um, indirectly there's there's evidence that his his great success in collecting this extreme rarity was um, down to the local Indigenous people. One of the more famous naturalists that you write about is the esteemed ornithologist John Gould. Can you tell us some of the ways that his discoveries were facilitated by Indigenous people? Right from the start when um, Gould landed in Tasmania in Hobart, um, there, of course, there weren't many Indigenous people available on uh, mainland Tasmania, on the, on the, well, on the island Tasmania, because the Palawa had been basically sent into exile um, onto um, at, to Waipelina on Flinders Island. Um, but Gould made a trip to Flinders Island, and 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 there he did engage with them. Straight away, and they took him on trips across the island, and and he collected the mutton bird eggs and Cape Barren geese eggs and so forth with their help. He also met a young indigenous boy called Adolphus, uh, whose um, Palawa name was Timernadik. Yes, I'm not right. sure if that's right pronunciation. Uh, who he said had had eyes like a, an eagle and. Um, it was fabulous with a spear and a waddy, and he he um, helped him find birds and bird nests in particular. And he he was um, tasked with taking Adolphus back to to Sir John Franklin and Lady Franklin to 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 educate. Mm -hmm. um, just as um, they took on Mathina, yeah. uh, but it's much less well known that they also. Um, took on other indigenous kids that, um, without great success, I think no. it must be said. <laughs> no, indeed. So that, that was his first encounter in, in um, on Flinders Island, and then when he he visited the hunter, uh, his brother-in-law and the hunter, uh, Natty and Jemmy, he met Natty and Jemmy and formed very uh, close relationship with them. They. They, he loved their sense of humour and their their keenness to find him birds and discuss natural history things with him because that was his passion. And um, yeah, so they 
took him out and he first encountered um, great swarms of budgerigars with them um, and all sorts of other mammals as well as birds. And when he went back to England, he kept writing to his brother-in-law to, you know, tell Natty and Jemmy that to please keep collecting for me and, you know, how much I enjoyed my time with them and... Mm. Yeah, that just reminded me, listening to how uh, these Indigenous people led so many of these naturalists to these, you know, great discoveries, you know, like seeing these big swarms of budgerigars for the first time, that one of the coolest parts of the book, and I think there's some um, some illustrations of this as well, is how uh, some Indigenous men were observed sticking bits of cobweb to bees and mm, then sort of following yes. the bees back to the hives. Like, that's yes. so fascinating. Ingenious. Yeah, it is genius, yes. Mm slow them down just enough to be able to see them and uh, follow them because they obviously fly in a straight line. What I find really interesting about talking about this book now is that we're talking a day or two after the release of that UN report that revealed one million species of animal are at risk of extinction because of humans' impact on the planet. One of the recommendations that that report made to try and nullify the damage is that Indigenous knowledge should be protected and used in managing ecosystems. So in light of that recommendation, what do you think we can learn from your book moving forward in terms of conservation and our continued uh, understanding of zoology? In the 20th century, when most of our higher animals, as they're called, that's, that's reptiles, birds and mammals, have been discovered that in that, um, the Indigenous people were still teaching us things. Um, so, for example, the Blandowski expedition that went out to the junction of the Murray-Darling Rivers, mm-hmm. um, they got there just before or just as settlement, well, well just as the stock and, and uh, uh, European settlers were arriving, and with the, the help of a whole tribe, um, Landowski managed to collect um, a whole lot of mammals in particular that are no longer with us. And um, it was, yeah, the first signs of the damage that we were doing. That was back in 1856-57. Wow. Certainly, if we, if we look at the contemporary Indigenous land management practices and the Aboriginal ranges, especially those across the top end and the centre of Australia in the, in the areas that are, are less populated, say, we can really see a huge impact that they're making on their environment and, and both in terms of the management of feral animals but also in terms of management of, of natural animals, native animals, sorry, not natural animals, native animals. And I, don't, I think it is at our peril that we ignore um, their, their, their very deep long and uh, sophisticated understanding of the relationships that those animals and and plants and flora have on in those environments. So, I mean, I, I find it deeply sobering that, that we're talking about a million, a million species being threatened by mm. extinction. Um, humans have done, a, Europeans in particular, um, have done a pretty um, thorough job in so many parts of the world that uh, I think it really is up to us now to stop and listen. And I hope that some of what we touch on in the book might actually at least offer a framework for thinking about how we can use Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous faunal and ecological and environmental knowledge going forward into the future.
Absolutely. I think in light of the recommendation that report made to have a book that puts Indigenous knowledge of zoology and ecosystems front and centre is really fantastically timed and um, really fascinating as well. Um, Thank you so much for joining me to chat about this book, Um, Penny and Lynette. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear you talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, Angus. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Australia's First Naturalists by Penny Olsen and Lynette Russell is published by the National Library of Australia, or NLA Publishing, and it's out now at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.